0: So, last night was one of those rare evenings where I was home by myself. It was quiet. It was nice. I sewed leather. But I looked in the fridge and saw limited options that were easy. And so I decided I was going to splurge and go grab something to eat. Be nice to myself. But then I had to decide where to go. And so I sat there for like 30 minutes. I even Googled restaurants, even though I know all the restaurants around me, trying to find what do I want, what sounds good, what am I hungry for? And it was interesting that what was supposed to be a treat to myself actually almost turned into work because I couldn't figure out what I wanted. Is that familiar to anyone? Have you had that experience where you all get in the car to go out and eat, and then it's where do you want to go, no, where do you want to go, where do you... Anyone? That wasn't just my family, right? Um, That can be a source of friction sometimes and i want to sort of grapple with this question in a larger sense this morning which is this idea of what do you want what what is it you're seeking when you think about life in the biggest sense what do you want it sounds actually like a rather self-centered question to ask on sunday morning because you know we're supposed to think about what god wants of us, but we're going to find that this question is actually all over Scripture. In fact, what do you want is a question that Jesus asks numerous times through the Gospels. And in many of Jesus' very intimate interna- interactions with individuals, it seems that he either asks this question directly or asks questions that draw those individuals to really grapple with this question of what is it that I want? Now, here's the disturbing truth about this. When we get down to it, most of us don't know. Most of us go through life having no idea of what those deep desires are that are driving our emotions, that are driving our responses, that get us out of bed in the morning. In fact, I would imagine tomorrow morning some of us are going to drag ourselves out of bed against our will Get ready for work or get ready for school. Go put in a full day. Come home, maybe eat dinner. Hopefully you can decide what you want. Try to enjoy the rest of the evening. Maybe catch up on chores or do homework or watch TV or work on a hobby, whatever it is. And then you're going to go to bed and you're going to repeat that cycle a few times this week. And for many of us, we'll do that all the while not really aware of what's driving us. What are our deepest wants? Now, this is an important question because our wants or our desires really power our emotions, and it's our emotions that drive our decisions. Now, we're told to want things all the time. This is what advertising is, by the way. It's a voice telling you what you want. From childhood, we have all of these numerous voices telling us what we want. It might be a parent telling you what you should be when you grow up or what you shouldn't be. It might be a friend giving advice that really boils down to telling you what you should want. Others know what they want you to want. Politicians, institutions, religious leaders, your family, maybe your boss, your coworkers, maybe even your friends. There's no shortage of outside voices telling us what we should want. And often, we just go by the assumption that we know what we want but usually we're wrong. We have all of these outside ideas that we've collected in our consciousness and more often than not, we end up chasing all sorts of things, living with this sort of ongoing sense of buyer's remorse when we take hold of a thing or find a thing that we've chased and realize that wasn't really what I wanted. It didn't satisfy what I'm looking for. I believe this question is at the heart of you know, people who go on these journeys of self-discovery or whatever, I think it's people are figuring out what they want. I think this question is the source of what we call a midlife crisis. We've put all these years into getting somewhere, or maybe we didn't get where we thought it we wanted to, or maybe we did, and in midlife, we realize, like, there's got to be something else, or maybe this isn't actually what I wanted. We're trying to find this answer, not aware that we often have no idea. What we truly want. We may want this sort of romanticized idea of various things, but not the actual thing itself. And as a result of this, most of our conflicts happen for reasons we don't recognize. We're often upset, not because somebody said the wrong thing or because we're right, but because a desire, a want that we're unaware of, hasn't been met, or we perceive it's being blocked by someone. James, in fact, captures this very idea. Uh, James chapter 4, you might be familiar with it. He actually asks this question. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And then he gives the answer. He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? By the way, next time you get in an argument, this is a really good thing to think about. What is the desire that's causing me to feel this way and respond this way? He goes on. He says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Hopefully we're not doing that. He says, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. I would actually get underneath that and say, probably because you're asking for something you think you want, but isn't really the deeper thing. You ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Can we take to heart just this morning this idea that when we get into arguments, kerfuffles, discussions, debates, whatever we want to call them or justify them as, it isn't because we're right. It isn't because the other person has a bad opinion. It's because there's something deeper that we want that they're in the way of. And as you think about maybe the, the points of rubbing with other people that you've had even in the recent past, I bet if you think for a while, you can get underneath what it is that you wanted that caused this to happen. James says we get into arguments and conflicts because of our wants. And we do this without realizing that it drives us. We only see the disagreement, which is really the surface level, but underneath that is this... Mass of desire and want that often is unseen give you an example Of point of conflict sometimes I feel You're driving Someone cuts you off Or maybe you're at the store and somebody cuts in line You get upset I'm the only one right like nobody else deals with this ever You don't like speak to the other driver even though they can't hear you So you get cut off you probably aren't upset because they're in front of you. For some of us, that might be debatable. But what probably is going on is, is you or I are responding to something we care about but don't recognize it's being blocked. It might be you want justice and this feels unjust. doesn't feel fair. It might be that you want just courtesy or paid respect or kindness. Maybe you want recognition. You don't realize any of that as you're talking to that other driver and getting irritated you're not upset usually because they're in front of you. I'm not upset because they're in front of me. But really, that frustration comes from things I perceive being taken that I don't even realize I want. So I'm convinced that Jesus wants us to recognize our wants because it's when we see them clearly for what they are that we then have the opportunity to desire better things. In John 1, the the journey of the disciples begins in what I still see as a a peculiar way. There's a couple guys that are following John the Baptist. A number of people actually were following John the Baptist. And John looks at Jesus as he walks by and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And so two of these guys hear John say this, and they walk off. and, And now they want to follow Jesus. So notice Jesus' first question and their answer. This is John chapter 1. It says when the Two disciples heard him say this. This is hearing John the Baptist. They followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? I don't think it's a, what do you want, right? I think it's a genuine question. What do you want? Some translations have this, what are you seeking? And so they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? I would suggest they didn't follow John the Baptist just to find out where Jesus was staying. That wasn't this pressing question on their minds. There's something deeper. And yet this is fascinating because the disciples start following Jesus, having no idea what it even means to become like Jesus. They can't possibly want that because they don't even know what it is. They're seeking something else, and I'm convinced they're unaware of what that thing is either. In fact, every single one of the disciples that we find out about in Scripture, those sort of 12 core followers, everyone began following Jesus before they understood who He was. Not yet having any idea about what would take place on the cross. Which is a fascinating reality because you go to Matthew 4 and you see some of these disciples leave their family business laying there on the seashore, and they start following Jesus, still not really sure what it is they're looking for. Along the way, their desires are exposed, they're challenged, and this is a necessary part of the process of becoming like Jesus and learning to want the things that he wants. As a side note, I would just say, I find find it really encouraging that we can make a decision to begin following Jesus before we're really even sure if we have faith. That Jesus receives us where we are. In fact, I would argue we get that backwards sometimes and we assume you have to make this great statement and an agreement of faith and then you start following Jesus. That seems to be pretty backwards to what we see in the Gospels. It's actually as we learn the ways of Jesus and practice the ways of Jesus that we realize Jesus is right. That was your words this week, right? That was your experience when you were eight, I think. And, and at some point, we start to realize, Jesus has something that I deeply want, and I need to find what that is. That's part of this process of following Jesus. Often, that is developing far before we make some statement or affirmation of faith. Now, a few chapters later, we find Jesus at a well. He's in a hostile place. He's by himself. The disciples, I believe, have gone into town to get food and he has this unlikely visitor. Jesus is sitting behind a well, besides a well in Samaria, and a woman walks up. By the way, I won't get into the depth of the story, but she walks up at a time that you wouldn't really expect her to, alone, not with the other women. And so Jesus asks her for a drink. Maybe you know this story. And she's surprised by this, surprised that he even acknowledges her, and she she asks, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. She asks because there's hostility between her people and his people. This isn't the way it's supposed to go. And and even further in their culture, typically a man wouldn't give a woman the time of day. But notice where Jesus takes this conversation. Again, you might be familiar with this story, but, but I really want us to pay attention and Rick, if I can have you just click through these as I read them. Verse 10 of John 4. Jesus answers this question, how, how could you ask me for a drink? He answers her, saying, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is, by the way, showing there's a better want, right? Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She's starting to process this. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself and did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answers, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And Jesus here is revealing this better option, this better want, right? So the woman says to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, what's interesting is Jesus offers this living water and it sounds good, but she's still thinking in small terms. She's still thinking of actual water. This is going to make life easier. I don't have to come out here by myself. I don't have to do this work. I don't have to come to this well. And then Jesus gets at the deeper, perhaps unrecognized want that's driving her in a a likely uncomfortable way. Verse 16, Jesus tells her, she's just said, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty. I won't have to keep coming back here to draw water. They're talking about water. And Jesus tells her, go, call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. I thought we were talking about water. This is kind of awkward, by the way, right? If you can imagine this. Why does Jesus raise this issue? Is it to shame this woman? Because this was a shameful reality, by the way. Or is it to prove he's a prophet? He can you know, read things he shouldn't know about her? Or is it to get at what her heart really wants and to expose it for what it is? Perhaps to be wanted, to be loved, to no longer be an outcast, to be valued, to experience love. I think that's what Jesus... Is sort of helping her dig into. Recognizing what her deeper wants are as she's presented with a better option. Now, just a chapter later in John 5, I would argue it gets even more comfortable. If you really pay attention, by the way, to Jesus' conversations through the Gospels, it doesn't seem he's really concerned with our comfort level. So, John 5, Jesus is back in Jerusalem. He's at this really hopeless place. It's called the Pool of Bethesda. It's surrounded by all of these broken people just hoping for a miracle. You have blind people, mute people, paralyzed, various injuries. They're laying there, and they're waiting for the water to be stirred up, believing in this idea that if the water stirs up, the first one in it might be healed. So if you can imagine... The kind of people that this is their best hope. That's the folks who are here. Not a real hopeful place. It's not a happy place. And so Jesus walks up to a man. who are told his legs haven't worked for 38 years. There's a lot of things I would expect Jesus to say. And this is not it. Verse 5 of John chapter 5. says, one who is there and had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Like this could be misunderstood as a really cruel interaction, right? Like I don't think it would be received really well if I walked up to somebody who had this hideous injury they had dealt with all their life. And I started off with, would you like to be better? Would you like, would you like this not to be the case? By the way, he doesn't say yes. He begins to speak of his helplessness. And it's interesting, the way that Jesus heals this man. He says, get up and take your mat and walk. And I imagine even trying that took a great amount of faith because he knew his legs didn't work. But why does Jesus ask this question first? Why doesn't he just heal him? I think again and again we find Jesus really trying to get at the root of what's going on inside the hearts of people. In the following chapter, now we're in John 6, Jesus performs his two most famous miracles. He feeds 5,000 people with what amounts to a young boy's lunch. It's a few fish and, and bread pieces. And then if that wasn't enough, shortly after that, Jesus walks on water, completely freaking out his disciples as they're on this boat out on the water Now it's what follows these events in, in light of what's just happened that I find fascinating and also troubling. See, right after the miracle, right after the feeding in verse 15 of John six, if you're looking there, we're told the reason Jesus withdrew himself by himself, which is why he wasn't already in the boat with the disciples and came walking on the water later. So the reason Jesus withdrew from these crowds was that he knew that in response to this miraculous feeding they had just experienced, the people intended to make him king by force. That's the words there. They recognized the miracle and that Jesus was a promised prophet, and it seems as if almost reflexively, they're ready to start a war, literally, to make him king. Think about that for a moment. What that crowd was like. This would not have been a quiet reality. If you can imagine, when you have angry protests or crowds chanting, it's probably that kind of scene. We're, we're, you know, we're gonna do this. We're gonna uprise, and this guy's gonna be our king. They're riled up. The next day, this crowd realizes yeah, Jesus and his disciples are gone, but there was only one boat. And the disciples left in it without Jesus. So where did he go? And so they follow where the disciples went. They go on this long walk, essentially to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, searching for this Jesus that, again, they're ready to go to war for. I can imagine there's an energy. These aren't people quietly walking along. They're ready to go to battle to make this guy their king. They're probably talking about, can you believe what happened yesterday? Right? Maybe thinking of Old Testament scriptures, talking about the Messiah. But when they find Jesus, this is what happens. This is chapter 6, verse 25 of John. By the way, this, this question almost echoes the weirdness of the question in John 1 with the first disciples. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? By the way, that wasn't really what they were concerned with. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because of the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. What you really want is more bread, not me. As I think about that, it's sobering that sometimes we just aren't so different. What we really want is the thing God could give us rather than a relationship with God. So verse 30, they ask him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What just happened? Is your your memory that short? What will you do? And then they go on, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Can you do what Moses did? Can you keep giving us this bread? And Jesus says to them, verse 32, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Kind of like the one with the well. This seems like a no-brainer. Sir, at least they're using a nice term here, always give us this bread. In other words, be the vending machine that keeps pouring out bread for us. This is a really cool thing. They want Jesus to be like Moses, but even more, they want Jesus to provide bread in an ongoing fashion. And so it's at this point that Jesus sort of drops this bomb saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Again, this sounds fairly similar to that conversation we saw at the well a couple chapters earlier with water, this time bread. It says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Now it's at this point that the grumbling sets in. And if you can picture this, these same people who are ready to go to war For Jesus less than 24 hours ago are now getting irritated with Jesus because he isn't giving them what they want. Not really understanding what it is they want. So this conversation continues. And Jesus explains that his body is the bread and his blood is the drink that will lead to life. Admittedly, not knowing about the cross yet to come, this was a hard thing to grasp. And then in verse 66, the really tragic part takes place. Verse 66 says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. That's quite a swing in 24 hours, isn't it? And notice he doesn't say the crowds. It's people who were following Jesus. People who wanted to be disciples. A day before, they wanted to fight for him as king. And now they're walking away. And why are they walking away? Because he didn't line up with what they wanted. And friends, I think they were confused about what they wanted. The sobering thing is they thought they wanted something other than what they did. By the way, this is who we are. There's so many studies on this idea just just one example there was a study around um, do we want it does does freedom and choice make us happier so this is the way they did this study they They put on a class and taught a bunch of people how to do photography and and finish pictures and things like that and At the end of the class, they told everybody um Pick your two best pictures, your two most favorite pictures, and we're going to keep one, and you can keep one. Okay? So one group of people, they, they presented this as this like irre- irrevocable decision. You, know, you, you choose it, working with the other one, you can't ever change it. The other group, they said, you keep one, and if you ever change your mind, just come back and tell us, and we'll, we'll swap with you. Guess which group was happier in the long term? The ones who didn't have the choice. Very interesting. We would think that the choice would be something we want, and it turns out it didn't really work out that way. So in this crushing moment in John 6, with with these people walking away, Jesus turns to his disciples, the, the 12, and he asks this question. He says, you do not want to leave me too, do you? And so Simon Peter answers him. This is in verse 68. His answer is interesting. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Verse 69, we have come to believe. In other words, they didn't know this before when they were following him. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. The disciples still don't know everything about Jesus. I would argue they still aren't exactly aware of what it is they want from Jesus. But they've now come to this place that at least they recognize there's this desire here and the only place I'm going to find it is Jesus. Where else would I go? You can see this progression. They still couldn't tell you exactly how that works out or what that is or what the cross is going to look like, but they've at least come to this place that they recognize I want something. And the only place I'm going to find it is Jesus. Where else would I go? He has the words of life. And so I would I would say this is this incredible, important question. What are you seeking this morning? What do you want? What do you deeply want? Now, I ask that question knowing that for many of us, we know the answer a lot less than we realize. But the question is, is a critical one because it isn't at all unusual, sadly, to follow after Jesus hoping a want we don't even recognize will be met. And if we're unaware of it, but then this doesn't happen, we might become disillusioned because Jesus isn't who we wanted him to be. I'm convinced that Jesus wants us to recognize our wants. Because when we see them clearly, it's then that we, we have the opportunity to want better things. It's hard to want a better thing when you don't know what you want in the first place. So go back to that person cutting in front of me for a moment. Maybe I'm on... Beltline near Delta Highway at rush hour, that lovely place to be about 4, 4.30, right, where all the traffic's backing up and, and people cut each other off a lot. It's a lot easier to respond in an entirely different manner than irritation or a conversation I pretend somebody can hear. If I can recognize what's happening, what the wants are that this person is blocking, especially if I want something better, like maybe more than for them not to cut me off, I want to look a little more like Jesus. And as I think about that, maybe the person that cuts me off needs to be somewhere worse than I do. I'm okay with that. Maybe something upsetting has happened to them and I should pray for them or perhaps I should have compassion. Maybe there's some sort of emergency that they're trying to rush to. Probably not, but it's possible. Maybe they are sort of a jerk. And I should have pity on them because that's not a good way to live a life. When I recognize what's actually driving my responses and my emotions, and I've already brought those things before God, and I'm in fact seeking better things like Christ likeness rather than not being cut off, it's then that I'm empowered to respond in a way that's completely different. And friends, every one of us has perhaps a hundred. Such moments every day where we respond without realizing why, not knowing those wants underneath, and we wonder why we don't look more like Jesus. Sometimes it's because we're still stuck wanting something else and we don't realize it. But it's when I'm unaware of those wants, those desires, when those are just unseen forces sort of driving the bus that it's really hard to respond well. Whether it's a guy cutting me off, or somebody deeply wounding me, or an argument, whatever it is. So let's return to this question. What is it you want? What is it you want more than anything else? You know, it's interesting, when Jesus talks about stuff in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about worry and anxiety. What's his answer? He says, seek first the kingdom of God. And then all these other things will be added. They'll all line up. Seek first. It's, it's almost like we need to know what else we're seeking before we can do that. Isn't it? Before we can make that choice. So... As I said earlier, we're journeying through this book together for the next number of weeks, this book, The Good and Beautiful God. We're doing this because the best thing that can happen to us as a church this year is that we learn to look more like Jesus. We start wrestling with these things like, what am I seeking? So that I can choose a better choice. The interesting thing, and and if you're reading, you're you're seeing this idea already, this change happens in indirect ways. I don't become more like Jesus by being religious or trying harder. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. It happens indirectly, often through practices that don't seem important that we call spiritual disciplines. And uh, this is what our community groups are going to be doing together. The emphasis actually is going to be a lot less on the book than it is on what it's like to practice some of these things and to unpack that experience together. Again, if you're not part of one of these groups, it's a great time to jump in. I want to read for you what the discipline is, soul training, exercise, if you will, for this week. It's the discipline of sleep. And this is going to be the challenge this week, is at least one day, Sleep until you cannot sleep anymore. That works well with our schedules, right? If you need to, find a day when you can sleep in. The aim is to sleep until you can say, I'm completely rested. You might be surprised how difficult that is to do. He goes on to say, maybe your schedule doesn't allow that, so at least shoot for seven hours of sleep for multiple nights. Work on a consistent schedule. Do these things. That doesn't seem super spiritual, does it? You need to go to sleep. I would say this, sleep is a spiritual discipline. It is exceedingly difficult to be patient and kind or generous or compassionate when I'm exhausted. That's when I usually am grumpy, right? I would argue sleep is, in fact, a spiritual discipline. It's these kinds of things that we're going to be putting into practice the next few weeks. And whether you're part of a group or not, I would challenge you to try this this week. We start here because as we rest, that's when we can have a clear mind and heart and begin to go before Jesus, seeking awareness about what is it I actually am chasing after, that I want, that I desire. What's driving me? What does it look like aware of those things, to choose instead to seek first the kingdom of God and trust that those other things are going to come as I follow Jesus. So I'm going to ask a really blunt question. And as I've thought about this, it's almost an impossible question because we're all going to say yes, but I don't know if it's true. The question is this, do you want to be more Christ-like? The obvious answer in church is yes, right? But there are probably competing desires that may win out. This is true. Again, through the Gospels, we find numerous people saying they want to follow Jesus. And then he doesn't end up doing what they want. In fact, Jesus' reply more than once as people say they want to follow him is, count the cost. Count the cost. It's hard to do that if we don't know what the cost is and what we want that we're setting aside to put Jesus first. Counting the cost means weighing our desires, our wants against Jesus. Again, it's hard to do that if we don't know what those wants really are. So again, what are you seeking? What drives you? What do you want? If you're not sure this morning... That's not surprising. This isn't something we think about often. But when we can put our finger on our deepest desires, we often realize that what we're striving for isn't going to do it. And that opens the door to seeking God's kingdom first in our own lives. Rather than allowing ourselves to be driven by these invisible, competing desires, it is possible to have A full life. We may not even know exactly what that life looks like, but come to the place that we at least can respond like the disciples and say, I know I'm not going to find it anywhere else, Jesus. When we find that reality and we seek God's kingdom, it's fascinating how much easier it is to get out of bed. That there's a drive that has life to it. That there's this surprising reality that Jesus is right. Like as we give ourselves away, as we serve people, as we put others first, as we make ourselves servant to others, wow, life's better. It's fuller. That doesn't seem like it should work. It doesn't line up with what I want, right? But we realize he's right when we experience it, when we walk in it. Generosity, kindness, patience, compassion, loving in a way that isn't deserved. As those become a response because we recognize we're only going to find what we actually want in Jesus. Life gets better. It just does. We come to a place that our deepest desires aren't something we have to chase after any longer because they're being provided for. And so I would ask you this morning. First of all, would you grapple with that question this week? As you see yourself responding in various ways, especially if you feel like that irritation level coming up or frustration, or whatever, that's like a, like a cue, right? To stop and go, okay, what is it I want here? Why am I responding this way? What is it I want? Can you wrestle with that question this, this week? And then I would also just ask this. What does it look like right now? in your life to take a simple step towards jesus see i love that as you walk walk through the the experience of the disciples and the gospels you find out that they start out with no idea of who jesus is jesus starts with that come and see answer right to those disciples and they do and as they start to understand who jesus is Then we kind of get this follow me where they actually start leaving things because they don't want to stay the same. They they see that it's valuable to change. And there's a whole process through all of that before they get to this point that Jesus says, be with me. This is after they go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now they're in ministry with Jesus. They're serving alongside him. They weren't ready for that in John 1. There's all these steps that happen. It's not just one. Eventually in John 15, Jesus is talking to them before he goes to the cross. And he calls them to something really great. It's in that part where he talks about a vine and the branches. He says, remain in me. And what he's calling them to is a life of self-sacrifice, a life that looks like Jesus. These are all steps. And I wonder this morning, where in that progression do you see yourself? And what does it look like to just take a baby step towards what God has for you? Let's pray together. Father, I admit that there is so much time in my life where I respond having no idea what it is I actually want. It's not that different than trying to pick a place to eat sometimes. Would you reveal to us what is driving our hearts? What it is we are seeking after and chasing and wanting? And would you help us to understand that there are probably even better, more life-giving things. And that we're only going to find them in you. As we find ourselves facing conflict or grumbling or discouragement or whatever it is this week. Father, would you help us just to stop and see what's driving that. To invite your spirit to come and, and just give us understanding and lead us. God, I would ask that you would make us more Christ-like this year. That you would bless the efforts of our groups that are meeting, the disciplines we're going to be practicing, simply so we could just look a little more like Jesus. We love you. God, we know You're the only place we're going to find life, and yet we chase it in so many places. Would you empower us in a new way this week to seek you first, trusting that the rest is going to line up? We need you at work for that to happen. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.